we're always afraid of the things we're going to lose because we can see them. They're, they're visually in our experience. So I can see that I'm going to lose this relationship or this job. But what I can't see is all of the amazing things that are going to come into my life by stepping into the unknown. And I now live in the space of unknown. Welcome to Your Next Chapter, the podcast dedicated to providing you with the game changers and experts to tackle the next chapter of your life. Whether you want to start a business, switch your career, or just get inspired, I provide you the guests to give you tactics, strategies, and mindsets to build the life you want and crush your next chapter. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to today's episode. Today's guest is Mark Groves. I had such a blast recording this episode. Mark is somebody I've wanted to have on the podcast for quite some time. I follow his work online and through Instagram, and we have mutual friends. And I was finally able to get him onto the show. And I am super stoked about the conversation we had. We dive deep into relationships. And that's a big reason why I brought him onto the show because I know for a lot of people, my life and millennials, is that relationships tend to be a big pain point. And so in the podcast, we dive into what are the qualities and characteristics of happy long-term couples. When you're single, what do you have to be doing to attract the person into your life that's going to provide you with a happy, long-term, fulfilling relationship? And then we get into talking about your own emotion, healing your own emotional wounds and other fun sidebar topics that I thoroughly enjoyed. So hopefully you guys enjoy this conversation as much as I did. So without further ado, here is Mark Groves. With me, I got Mark Groves on the line from Vancouver, BC. Mark, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with me and my audience. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited. It's a pleasure to meet you. I've uh, heard a lot about you, read your content, followed you on Instagram, so it's nice to have a final face-to-face. Yeah, man. I'm, well, thanks for uh, reading all of it. <laughs> there's, there's enough out there to get lost down the rabbit hole of my brain, so I appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of content out there, but yours sticks out to me, and so I definitely appreciate it and resonate with it. So thank you for taking the time. Appreciate you uh, sitting down and looking forward to this chat. First thing, let's start off. I prepped you for this question, and this is how I lead off all my podcasts. If your life was a book title, what would be the title of your book? I didn't have to think long about this. I think it would be Life in Reverse. Life in Reverse. Okay. Why Life, life in Reverse? I'm curious to know. Because what I've noticed or just understood through the journey of understanding my own emotions and understanding relationships and all those sorts of things is that I've actually just been unlearning all the things I actually knew. So I feel like Life in Reverse is that in that I'm actually more so like I was at four now in that I'm just a ch- more, of course, it's the constant unlayering, right? Understanding what, why we're doing what we're doing and, and what's programmed us in certain ways. But now, like, my life is a complete expression of who I am. And I feel blessed to be able to say that because at four or three or two or whatever age you choose before you start to adopt behaviors in order to be loved and appreciated by the people around you in order to fit in. Before you do those things, you are just such an expression of yourself. Before you think about what words you're going to say or is it going to sound cool, you know, I think some editing of our language is important from our thoughts. But, yeah, that's why I think it's been sort of like a life in reverse and that I'm I'm now coming back. It's like the Benjamin Button, although hopefully I don't look like an old baby. <laughs> well, I found that interesting. I just talked to Tim Matthews. He's a men's empowerment coach in Italy, and his book was – the man who became a boy and very similar to mm. you where he talked about unlearning a lot of things, right? Where he went into this, you know, very professional field and was felt like he was trying to run a business and being very logical. And as he started unlearning things, that's when he really discovered his intuitive gifts and abilities and became a men's empowerment coach. So it's interesting that you say that because I agree with that. And there's lots of people, Gary Vaynerchuk to talk about being self-aware. So I want to know how do you unlearn things for yourself? Because we all have all this messaging and programming that comes on to us. What does unlearning look like for you? Um, for me, it is that, I, I mean, I feel, I feel like all of us sort of have a, a trigger to it, which, you know, some sort of experience that wakes us up to why am I doing what I'm doing? You know, sort of the question that gets asked of her, is this behavior okay? Whatever it is. And for me, the, 
unlearning has been, first off, understanding what are the programs that are running in my subconscious. Like when I think about, if we're just talking about relationships, it's like, what do I think about love? Like what have I been taught? What are the things that are true for me? And one that was massively taught and programmed into my brain is that every relationship needs to last forever. You know, and so understanding that that's not realistic without realistic skill set. You know, I just expect to wake up and that to be true. You know, so I think learning that kind of stuff, you know, things like under uncovering, like, what is your religion taught you? What is your culture taught you? Because we all have so many beliefs that guide our life, but they're operating underneath what we, we actually, what we're actually thinking. Like we think our conscious mind is making all the decisions, but it really isn't. And so I think the, the work is understanding what are the narratives, as they would call them, and then what are more healthy narratives? And if we think about our brain like a computer, it's like what programs are running, which are actually viruses, and how do we become the programmer instead of allowing the messages that come into us to be the things that run our programs? There's a great book called The Four Agreements. I'm not sure if you've read it or not, mm -hmm. but it basically talks a lot about that. Like, What is the program that's been fed to you by your parents, school, society, the media? And then he talks about creating a clean slate for yourself where you can really take it and just reflect on that and find out what is really true to you and create your own programs for yourself. Yeah, I love that book. And I, it, that's a great reminder because I actually forgot about the clean slate part of it. And I think that's the thing is that intuitively we know what, and you could say what our soul calls for, what our heart calls for, whatever the expression is, it doesn't really matter. We just know that there's this gap between who we're being and who we are. And that gap is usually we're just a couple decisions away from closing it. But I believe that the space between who we are and who we're being is where our pain comes from, you know, because the pain of not being yourself is the greatest pain of all. So learning how to honor that awareness and then make the changes, of course, that's the real catch, right? Because now you've got to do the thing that makes you become who you are, which means you might be rejected by the people around you. Yeah, and on that point, and this is something you don't know about me, but I came forward of being bisexual on a podcast 20 episodes ago, and that was a big thing for me because, you know, men are attracted to women, and we're conditioned that, or you're, you know, you're like a man, and so it was really difficult for me to understand that you could be mutually attracted to both, right, and that was a big script for me to overcome for a long time, and understanding that I could have feelings for a woman and a man, and that was a really hard thing for me because there was so much shame there in that gap you talked about. Mm. I wasn't honoring myself, right? And so for the longest time, I was living a double life where people in Vancouver knew I was dating these girls, but they didn't know behind the scenes that I was also dating men. And so that was really hard for me because that created a lot of pain and turmoil. And there was a huge healing process that I'm still going through, but I feel like I've done a lot of the work now because coming forward and being public about that has been such a big process of honoring who I am and no longer lying to people about my identity. It takes such immense, like, congratulations for that because it takes such immense courage to actually do that. And you know that because you're basically saying, here's, the, here's my true essence, love me or, or don't. But of course, the greatest fear is people say they don't, you know, but my greatest fear was like, people are going to leave me like my jock friends are going to be like, you're gay. See you later. And that was my biggest fear. Yeah. And, you know, that's what we all live in, which is this. If I am truly who I am, I'm going to lose the people who love me. But what we don't see is that when we lose the people who don't accept us for whatever it is, we actually make space for people who will. And so we don't, you know, we're sort of like locked in this space that our family is our family, but we don't see that we're like in this universal family. You know, there's so many people. When you start to find people who think like you and feel like you, all of a sudden you go, man, there's other people like me. I thought I was just part of this certain religion or this certain belief system. But my God, there's other people who don't know what the fuck they're doing. I don't know if I'm allowed to swear. You're allowed but, to swear. Yeah, it's fine. Okay. But there's no one knows what they're doing. And, you know, it's like we all pretend to. And I think you you sort of like alluded to this, this like usually we can catch the things that are truly our essence because they're the things we're doing in the background. You know, like I have friends who are like conveniently religious where they're like externally Muslim and then they're doing shots of Jack Daniels or they're externally, you know, whatever. You know, or they're Christian and they're having lots of sex with people before marriage, which is totally fine. It's just like just to own it. Don't judge other people for the things. Anyways, that's a, probably a whole other podcast. But. 
For people that don't know you, when you meet somebody at a dinner party, how do you explain what you do? I'm curious to know what your take is on that. <laughs> you know, that was like the greatest struggle when I left my old job, and then which I used to be in sales in the hospitals. So it was easy for me to just say, oh, I do sales in hospitals, and then all the things I wanted them to think about me were sort of communicated in that simple thing. Um, I, I tell people that I essentially am a, an emotional translator, like I unlock people's emotional matrix so they can understand why they do what they do. So they're not really the subject of their emotions. Instead, they get to choose them. And I, I called when I started to look at, like, I didn't really love the word coach just because I felt like it was becoming like a term, like a realtor. No offense, there's amazing coaches out there. I just didn't identify with the term. And then I thought, well, I really help people connect like to themselves and to other people. So I'm like, I'm going to call myself a human connection specialist. I was like, there's none out there. So no one can say you're not one. And so that's what I, so when I say human connection specialist, people are like, I have no idea what that means. <laughs> so, so maybe it'll get some sort of, um, some sort of running. But it's very logical. Human connection, you know, people understand that and you're a specialist. And so it's pretty clear cut. People might not, it's not a traditional job description, no, but that's people true, can right. piece it together. It's like, all right, he helps people connect and he's a specialist in that, right? So take it from Yeah, what that's it is. true. I'll have to do a poll. I'm curious to know what, how did you know you were good at this? Like what made you realize this is a place where I can help people, A, but B, also like, you know, make a living off it because I'm sure there was some fear about turning from a typical job to a non-traditional path. Um, I mean, as a kid, I was always like quite a connector within a group, you know, like within school, I knew all of the groups and I was friends, you know, I'd like to say that I was friends with everyone. Um and in i growing up i was just naturally good at sales you know i started doing sales when i was 17 i got a job at future shop for those people that remember it um which is i guess like a best buy and uh i had a job there and i worked there when throughout university i did my undergrad in finance cuz i felt like i was going to get a job in marketing because i was good at marketing so i just thought my brain was naturally in that state but you know what's fascinating is how much i've shifted is that I was reading books like How to Win Friends and Influence People and, you know, all the classic, like, how to manipulate this to get that, how to get, I remember I had this book, How to Get Anyone to Do Anything. Like, how manipulative can our logic be, right? And so, I was really good at sales. It was just something that naturally came to me. I didn't have to really try very hard and I excelled. And then, um, when I was 27, I had a relationship that ended in, I sort of stood, that was my moment of trigger of like, wait, how did I get here? Like, how did I get to this space where I'm so disconnected from myself? Like, I've been going down this relationship path, this job path, this whatever path for so long without even considering why. Like, I never took the time to be like, do I actually want this deep in my soul? Do I really want this? And I didn't, but I kept doing it. And it was really intriguing to me that I was willing to go so long down a path despite knowing, you know, in that underneath that soul call, that heart call, that gut call, I was so surprised that I was willing to do that despite the red flags, the alarms, you know, all the stuff that was going on in my body. And that's when I started to research relationships. And I saw that I had this tremendous skill with people from a sales business setting, but why wasn't I using this skill in relationship to love? You know, I wasn't a great communicator in relationship. I could talk about my feelings, but I wasn't great at it. And, but I was massive. I was really great at communicating in business. So it didn't make sense, right? Cause it's just words. They're the same words. It's, and so that's where I wanted to uncover what is it about some couples? Like why do some last forever and others not? And why do the ones that are happy that last forever? What is it about them? What is it about couples that don't work? And then I started to really see how those skill sets do translate from business to home. But it's just a matter of so many um, different programs that are running for us that we're taught by learning, by watching our parents, you know, by what we see on television, by what we see in movies, whatever it is. And I, as I was doing the research for myself, I started to see all the people around me who, you know, were struggling to figure it out, too. And I was like, no one's actually telling the truth about relationships. 
Like no one's actually telling us like, hey, it's actually really fucking hard to make a relationship last forever. And the ones that do, most of them don't even like each other anymore. So how do we actually have this dream that we all are subscribing to? How do we actually make it real? And how do we actually let go of relationships that don't serve us? Like, I don't feel like there was anyone out there saying like, hey, it's actually okay if you leave. And and I think for me, that was something that I sought when I was in that relationship that ended is no one was able to say like, it's actually okay if this isn't for you. Instead, it was you're afraid of commitment. You have Peter Pan syndrome. You're, you know, like all that stuff. Anyway, so the journey of uncovering this stuff for myself just saw that I just could take this skill that I had and people were coming to me for advice on relationships as I was learning this stuff. So it was really neat because, you know, they say when you try to find your passion, what do you naturally do people just talk to you about? And that for me was that. And I had the calling and my intuition start, start talking about relationships, start writing about them seven years before I did. Right. You know, so, yeah. So you felt in your gut, it's something that you almost intuitively knew, like you said, it really was not a surprise for you when you ended up on this path. No, but the one thing that was surprising for me was being a writer. I never thought I'd be a writer. I didn't like writing in English class. I didn't, but you know, it was such a cool medium to be able to communicate with people. And I, I just started writing one day. I just started in an Instagram one day. I just started writing on Facebook one day. You know, it was, I just had to start. I knew that the first step was I have no idea what the fuck it's going to look like. I just got to start. And I started and then. You know, it's evolved a lot since I started, but, you know, it's been a, it's just getting the first information out, actually saying I'm going to do this and doing the first thing, whatever it is. We will get back to that because I actually do have questions for you about your writing, but we're not going to jump into yeah. that right now. That's okay. kind of near the end. But I do want to go back to something you just said a little bit about successful relationships. A lot of my mm -hmm. listeners just had their first kid or engaged, or have been in a relationship for a while. So what are the ingredients to keeping a successful relationship, right? If you are going to be monogamous, it's just like, you know, what helps a relationship last 20, 30, 40 years and still be happy, right? Like you said, it's not about faking it and kind of just going through the motions. It's like, based on what you've read, studied the couples that you've helped, what separates the couples that are truly happy and stay together versus the ones that don't? Well, I think regardless of whether you choose monogamy or polyamory or whatever, the qualities and rituals of great couples are similar. Um, just that the one main thing distinguishing those is make sure you find someone who has a similar intention in relationship that you do. So, you know, um, there's a, I forget the guy's name. I wish I did so I could honor what he said because I love it. He said, find people who love like you do. So don't mismatch yourself with someone who wants something else. You'll be forever building a road to a different path. So, you know, really what I find a lot of the times with couples is they don't discuss their relationship agreements. And, you know, when I say to people like, have you written out relationship intentions or agreements? They're like, no, no, we haven't done that. But whether you choose to talk about them or not, they exist because they're exist existing in uncommunicated expectations. And so it's a very important thing when we're dating, you know, to declare what our dating intention is when we're actually deciding to enter a long term relationship with someone. What are our agreements about communication and truth and honesty? And when do we want to have kids? But, you know, all these things are very important. Um, and I think like probably the most important thing is that we are responsible for our emotions. We're responsible for understanding why we respond the way we do. You know, I see a, a lot of people will get defensive, critical, you know, they'll withdraw from, they'll get angry. And what they're not doing in those moments is understanding why is that their response. Because those re responses are just natural responses that we probably had as a kid. And so when we feel like we're going to be hurt, rejected, abandoned, we naturally will go to those. That's why they say those responses are always secondary. Like any type of emotional frustration or anger is always a secondary response to an actual emotional need that's not being met. So to give a very simple example is like, let's talk about, you know, if you don't leave the toilet seat down, right? That's a classic move. And 
So it's kind of funny when she falls in the toilet at 2 a.m. once, and then it's probably never funny again. Not funny again. But you're right, never funny again. And you're not allowed to laugh when they actually get mad about it. But I, I use that example because when someone says, you, always, you never leave the toilet seat down, what can be below that is, I'm not important enough for you to, to make that change. I'm not important enough for you to actually listen to what my need is. And so you see that there's that translation. And so why I say this about it being such an important quality of couples is that once we can understand what the emotional need is, we can communicate what it is. Then we don't have to get frustrated or angry or defensive or start to withdraw. And that really is like learning how to move from the reaction of like, I am angry to I feel it. Why do I feel it? And, you know, we talk about that in like the power of now. Eckhart Tolle would talk about it from being like aware of what your pain body is, mm-hmm. observing it, don't respond from it. So for sure, understanding your own emotional responses and where you learn them. So understanding we get that from our childhood, you know, looking at how our parents responded. We guaranteed picked up emotional responses from our parents. Like it's just we're learning. We're just like observing, observing, observing when we're kids. And I think the other one, too, is that the rituals of happy couples are very different. So, you know, we want to make sure that like when they look at really successful couples, they see that they're constantly surveying for what their partner is doing right. And they're looking for opportunities to say, hey, that's really amazing. Thanks for doing that. Those are constant communications that are going on in great couples. When couples are in a low or in a rut or just not doing well, they'll be surveying for what their partner is doing wrong. And, you know, in psychology, they call this confirmation bias. Like, we're going to confirm the things that we believe, um, especially about this person doesn't love me. Let me prove why. Right. As opposed to this person does love me. Let's prove why. You know, very different perspective. They say the Uh, same thing in business, right? Business owners and entrepreneurs that look at successes and be like, hey, this is working for me are more likely to succeed than people that are always looking for what's not working in their business, right? It's that mindset that's a typical thing of what you're reaffirming is what you're going to see. And that's what's going to escalate or perpetuate as you move forward. Yeah, it's crazy, right? Because it's the how we do one thing. It's how we do everything is absolutely true. Um, And I think there's, you know, there's a lot of different responsibilities that we have as partners like we sort of like show up in relationship we get married and we just expect that now it's going to last forever and of course relationships do require effort you know they do but they also require you know um appreciation you know so many couples i work with or just even single people they don't share what they appreciate when they're in relationship they don't say like hey here's this thing about you and this is why i appreciate it you know so as a couple if you do that once a week like my partner and I, three times a week usually, we don't have a set schedule. It's just part of our habits now is we share two things that we're grateful for about life, you know, the situation, whatever it is, and why we're grateful for those things. And then we share what we appreciate about each other. And who doesn't want to hear what someone appreciates about them, right? But it keeps that that culture of the relationship positive. And I think the one thing that really like transformed my life as an individual and then in relationship, because it first occurred when I was single and learning, is I made the rule that I would always have all the conversations I don't want to have because they're the ones that matter. And that has been (laughs) the hardest rule to live by because it required so much courage and vulnerability. But what I noticed, and we know this from a corporate setting too, is that relationships and corporations have cultures, right? And there's always the like underlying culture, which is what's really going on in the business. And that's what you hear about at the water cooler. And that's what you hear about from couples when they're not together, when they're talking to their friends and bitching. Um, and what happens when we talk about all the things we, we don't want to talk about is we move that culture to actually what the culture is, is what's being talked about. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So there's not this gap between like, we all know the couples that are really frustrated below. And then on the top, they look like they're having the greatest time. And we're all like, no, we know, like we get, we see you. And so it's being able to actually talk about the things that matter. Cause anything you're not talking about is being fucking talked about. I could tell you that it's being talked about by delayed texts. It's being talked about by how you pass the salt by not greeting your partner. It's always being communicated. And that's why when people are, their relationships are ending 
and they're afraid to actually end them, they end them through their actions. And so this is why it just requires an immense amount of courage. But then the unspoken truths aren't guiding your relationship. You're able to actually deal with them. And imagine if we actually spoke to our partner as if we believed that they had the tools. Like, God, what would that be like if well, we trusted them? I feel a lot of relationships would not end the way that they do right now is what it comes down to. And that makes complete sense to me because even when I was working in corporate finance, you know, we had a pretty open culture as a small startup in Vancouver, pretty progressive company, but there were still things in the underlying culture that people were upset about. And you would talk about these things behind people's back and that would surface, right? And so that resentment between this person and that person or why they got to have this sales call or that sales meeting versus somebody else, it would linger there. And I see that happening again and again and again, like I went for a long weekend, this is the August long weekend, to a cottage with some friends and they bicker all the time. And I know that bickering is very surface level and there's things below that that's really bothering mm. them. And so my question to you is like, you know, when you have that surface level of shit that's going on and like, how do you get deeper to that root? Is it just sitting down and having those difficult conversations? Like if you're in a relationship, you know, things are not going well. Is it really about just putting, creating some time and space for that couple to sit down and have that difficult conversation? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's twofold. First, you know, the simple sort of response or or uh, way to resolve that is to sit down and actually talk about what's going on deep in your heart, the fears you have, the concerns you have. The challenge with that is that most people are sort of stuck in this thought of I don't know how to talk about my feelings. I have no idea how to navigate that. And so it can be helpful to have work with a coach or a therapist in order to be that sort of translator of what one person's saying and what that really means. You know, so if we come back to like the toilet seat thing, it's really like there's an underlying emotional need. And sometimes, and it just, it's a skill set we build is how do we get from the frustration to what we need? And so we need to learn how to do that. So again, the simple thing is, hey, let's just talk about all the shit that scares us, you know, and, and that be, you know, that should be an important part of agreement when you're starting out a relationship, but it's much more challenging when you're in a relationship that has established rituals that you built when you were 20, you know, like if you start dating someone when you're 20, you have a very different emotional understanding than when you're 30. And so to make that transition within relationship, it's probably helpful to have a therapist, I think, or a coach. I think it's really fascinating, you know, that we build all these skills to learn how to build successful businesses, online promotion, uh, you know, all these types of things. Yep. We go to university to learn how to do different things, but we never take the time to learn how to love people. And that to me is like, like basically most of our parents and some of them teach us great things and others don't. It, it's like going to a non-accredited school, you know, it's like going to a school that has poor education. You know, and and we don't see that. We don't see that love is a skill. Well, it's one of those fundamental beliefs that you should just know how to love a human being, right? It's like just almost in our hardwiring as a human when you're born, it's like you should know this, which is an ironic thing because we train and condition so many other things. Why not love, right? Why not dating skills? Why not communication skills and all that? They should be teaching this at school. Absolutely. 100%. Because your ability to be great in relationships will be the single most determining factor of your happiness in your life, your health. All of it will be coming back to you. How good are you at communicating in relationships? And the thing is, is it's not like you are born good at it or you are not. You can learn how to do it. And, you know, there's lots of resources. You can work with a coach. You can work with a therapist. There's opportunities. And I think, like, what happens with us is we're so afraid for relationships to end. We're so afraid for people to leave us or to, you know, have people think that we're a failure in love, that we will actually avoid the conversations that can break us up. But what we don't see is that those are the conversations that actually bring us deeper. And, you know, I think one of the greatest, I'd say this to the people I work with is seek to celebrate qualiversaries, like the quality of your relationship, not the anniversary. Getting to 10 years means shit if you're not happy. Because there's plenty of people who are at 10 years who hate each other, but there's lots of people at two years who love each other or five years or 20 because they're, they're actually seeking a feeling, not a timeline, but we're celebrated for timelines. We've got to stop celebrating timelines because, you know, that's there's sort of like this hierarchy. If you've been married 50 years, you're better at love than someone who's been married 20. Bullshit. That is definitely not true. 
It's certainly time is one measure of success, but it's, I mean, it's definitely not the only one. Just because you've been married for so long, yeah, it doesn't mean that you're good at your marriage, right? You could be going through emotions and miserable and frustrated under the surface. So just oh, because yeah. you have that time doesn't make you good at it. I mean, who doesn't know someone, if it's not your own grandparents, it's your friend's grandparents who hate each other, you know, like they're just together because they're supposed to be. And to me, that's mind blowing, you know, like, of course, they grew up in a different time. And that's, I think, one of the biggest challenges with relationship today is we have cohorts that are fighting for different intentions in relationship. One was, let's build this family system and let's get married to keep a structure. And the other ones are saying, I want to marry for love. And so that's why this timeline, this fa this family system structure doesn't understand that people today are like, this relationship isn't fulfilling me. I'm, I don't want to participate anymore. They're like, you're a failure. You give up too soon. You're abandoning, you know, it's very fascinating. Let's talk a little bit about the single life because we've talked a bit about relationships. So for people that like myself, dated men, dated women. And so now in a place where I'm seeking actually like a more long-term relationship because for a while it's kind of just understanding where I stood with my sexuality. But many people mm -hmm. are single, right? You know, they're kind of living whether downtown Vancouver, Toronto or wherever in North America. For those people, what are the keys to living a happy single life, but at the same time putting themselves in a place where they can attract that partner? Because you talk on your website that great relationships don't happen by chance, they're a choice, right? So what can we mm -hmm. do as a person that's single to find that person that's going to be a good fit for us? So I think the, the first part is understanding yourself, right? Like that personal growth, that commitment to... Because you don't have to be in a relationship to understand your emotions, right? It's actually best that you sort of like begin that journey when you're single. Right. It doesn't mean you can't do it in a relationship. It's, it's just easier to be immersed within yourself, you know? So reading books like The Four Agreements, reading books like Attached or, you know, understanding why do we act the way we act in a relationship? And from the single dating perspective, one of the most important things is really understanding what is your intention in dating? Because you can have the intention like, I just want a sexual partner right now, or I want to date, but I don't want anything serious, or I want to date and then I want something serious from that dating, you know, like whatever it is. Because what happens so often is we mismatch our relationship intentions. So, you know, a very traditional, simple understanding of this is one person wants to actually date and the other person wants a sexual connection. And we see this all the time, you know, where the person who wants just a sexual connection uh, or sorry, who wants to date says, yeah, I just want a sexual connection too, because they want to match what the other person is doing, because they just want to take whatever they can get. And what they don't see is that they're not honoring themselves. And so eventually, this always happens. You can't escape it. It always happens. I would say 100% of the time, I could say this is a fact, they will start to get frustrated and hurt that, and it'll start to be very clear that they actually want to date, because they're not honoring themselves. And so it's just really important that we honor ourselves. I think if you're on the sexual side of that connection, I think once you're ready to sort of like level to the higher level of integrity, and it's not a judgment because I used to dance in that space too, is if you see that someone else truly wants relationship and you want just a sexual connection, it's important to let them go. Because I think that's actually living to the higher level of it. Um, I think the most important thing is we really attract what we are. We attract who we are. And so if you want, if you write out a list of all the things you want in someone and you're not able to be it, it you're not going to get it, you know, because I see that a lot with the people I work with is, you know, they'll say, I want this person with this value system, this, this and this making these life decisions. And they're not doing that. And I'm like the person who does those things is going to walk right by you. And so we really have to live to the highest space of values and integrity that we have, you know, and. I think uh, in in the dating world, we have a scarce mindset. We sort of think, you know, there's my one. There's one person out there for me. And the problem with that mindset is that it has us hold on to people who aren't that. And what we don't see, there's, what, 7 billion people on this planet? You're lucky because you can tap into both sides. So for people who are just, you know, after one gender, you've really opened it up. You've really, you know, given yourself a lot more opportunity. And the, 
the truth, you know, when you think about that, you're like, okay, so there's, let's say, like 4 billion people are in your dating pool, you know, and if you get really restrictive, maybe 500 million, you know, 300 million, still, it's a lot of people. So if you were to just hold on to one person, because they're not all of it, you know, I think that that's, that's when we're not believing, like, the, the thought process in our mind when we're dating is, if I express what I truly want, I'll lose them. If I am who I truly am, they won't like me. So what do we do? We pretend to be someone else. We pretend to like shit we don't like. And then all of a sudden, three months down the road, we start to actually be who we are. And then, you know, the relationship fizzles. So I think really like honoring what you want and living a life that's true to what you want out of a partner. I think those are just the mainly most important things. And I can attest to that, too, because when I was living in Vancouver, there's five years where I only dated in open relationships. And during those five years, there's two girls, separate girls I did for two years each. And both of them knew that I'm like, look, I just want an open relationship and that's it. And as time went by in those relationships, they tried flipping me over to like, hey, let's be monogamous. Right. And they mm -hmm. didn't honor their intentions. And so at the end of it. It was a pretty ugly breakup because I was very clear about what I wanted and they were okay with it at the start of it. But as it kind of went on and on and on, they're like, well, why don't we get more serious? Right. And a big reason for that was because I didn't have clarification, of my sexuality, right? So I was going through this exploring phase. And so, and I wasn't comfortable telling them that at that point in time. But when I got to the point where, you know, I started dating girls and I told them I was bisexual, it actually aligned me even more in my sexual life with bisexual mm -hmm. girls, right? And having, you know, very open, loving relationships where we could bring other people into the bedroom with us. And that really even made it like, I always thought I was going to lose people and girls. Mm -hmm. And it's funny how like, it was the opposite where people like embraced me. And that dating life that like sexually that I wanted, accelerated, right? It, it really like heightened itself as opposed to it getting further away. So it's funny when you actually do put yourself out there, how you become more in alignment with it. And it sounds so obvious when I say it, but it's hard to do because oh, the emotions yeah. hold you back and the fear, the shame, the judgment, all of it is so real and it's so hard to overcome. Yeah. Until you do, right? And until then you now you look back and you go, wow, that was a lot. I mean, of course, there's so much courage that's required. And the first person who goes, I love that about you. And you're like, whoa, wait, this is amazing. What? And it's fascinating because, you know, if you look at, like, if we're just looking at the conscious mind versus the subconscious mind in dating, here's a simple one that most people say, I want a great relationship, right? They're like, I want a healthy and great relationship. But then they're dating people who are not that, like, very clearly not that. And, you know, you hear this a lot from women where they'll say, like, I always attract projects or date assholes. And... If we're just being conscious and logical about it, of course, they can look at this catch and go, this is not a great catch. But there's something in their subconscious mind that says, I need to date this person. I emotionally, because their emotional brain's making the decision. And so when we're single, this opportunity is great to understand what are we trying to heal from our childhood? Because what happens is we inevitably take two roles in a relationship, pursuer or runner. So we're usually the one going towards relationships or the ones running away from them. There'll be exceptions to that, but in general, we'll be one or the other. And the reason we take on that role is we often have parents who, and it will be different scenarios, but I'll just give like a very simple review. Like we ever had a parent who was all over our ass, very controlling, very like on top of us, or we had a parent who was withdrawn, maybe an alcoholic, maybe left, maybe worked a lot, whatever. And so we'll tend to date people who replicate the pain that we have with one parent more than the other. So if our parent was always gone, we'll date people who are unavailable, who are always trying to get to choose us. And so when we can understand from a subconscious concept, why are we pursuing people who aren't healthy for us? Then we can begin to change the story because the subconscious mind is running our script. We're trying to heal this experience. And it could be from our childhood, too, with like where we got bullied or where it doesn't really matter what. But it's understanding what is it so we can change it, because that's how we choose healthy relationships. That's how we create them. That's how we understand the the kid who got bullied, who reacts to things, you know, who who re reacts in that way is reacting from the space of a hurt child. And so we'll continue to choose situations that replicate that. So that's like, I mean, a very. It's a neat area to step into because once you understand it, it's like the lights are going on and you're like, whoa, 
this is crazy. So I haven't been making these decisions. And truthfully, no. Are these attachment patterns? So I had, yeah. I asked some mutual friends that know us on Facebook. I'm like, hey, I'm going to be talking to Mark. Anything you want me to ask? And this one girl's like, can you ask Mark about attachment patterns? And I'd, I'd never heard attachment patterns before. So I Googled it and I read an article on it. Mm. So talk a bit about attachment patterns because there was four in the article and I found it very interesting and I just did some brief reading on it. But I'd love to hear more about attachment patterns and how we subconsciously get attracted to certain people. Yeah, so attachment is originally research on how we bond with our mom. And so what they did was the researches and, and the attachment styles are based on a study where they had a baby playing in a room, a toddler, and mom would leave the room and mom would come back and they would look at how the baby bonded with mom on the return. And so what they saw was that when mom left and mom come back and baby freaked out, baby was like really worried that mom would leave again and not come back. So that baby would attach back to mom and hold on and cry and be frustrated, right? And that's called an anxious attachment. So the second one was an avoidant attachment. So mom leaves, mom comes back. Baby, when mom leaves, is like, cool, mom's gone, no big deal. Mom comes back, looks over its shoulder, like, oh, you're back, no biggie. But what's going on biologically, like physiologically, is the exact same response as the anxious attachment. So the heart rate's up, cortisol's up, stress is up. But they're acting like it's not a big deal. And then the third type is secure attachment. The reason there's four is because avoidant has two types. One is called dismissive. So that's the one where the person's like, no big deal, nonchalant, right? And the second one is called fearful. And the reason it's called fearful is they were often abused physically, emotionally, sexually as kids. And so they actually recognize um, that relationships are really great and they want one, but it scares them to enter one because of what love leads to. So they see that attachment from a childhood tends to relate to how we attach as an adult. So how you attach as a baby is generally how you attach as an adult. What's really cool to know is you can shift your attachment style. So secure attachment is mom leaves, mom comes back, baby reunites with mom and then goes back to playing and is at peace. And so in an adult relationship, the sort of like distinguishing factor of a secure attachment is that your partner's well-being is as important as your own. And so for an anxious person, it might be seen in, in what, if you read the book Attached, it's by a guy named Amir Levine and another author I can't remember the name of. It's fascinating because it'll talk about how this shows up in like texting or in all these like, and how do you resolve it? What are the antidotes to the experience? But what's really interesting is it doesn't cover the emotional causes. So what would happen if you're an anxiously attached person is you tended probably to have a parent who was withdrawn, a parent who was maybe not call it, you know, you have a, a parent who was generally not available. An avoidantly attached person tended to have, like maybe came from a very religious background, a controlling family, that kind of environment. So they're sort of like always wanting to withdraw from the situation because love leads to smothering and hurt and control. And securely attached people, they say that the population's about, I think they say 50 to 60% secure. I don't know that that's true, but I know that you can become it. So if you're anxiously attached, you can learn how to ask for what creates safety and security in your relationship. Essentially what your attachment system is, is a radar that's going, is this relationship safe and secure? Let me look for all the signs. So an anxiously attached person, their radar is on hyper alert all the time. Science shows that they can see facial changes and expression really quickly, much quicker than other attachment styles. They're always surveying, right? Like we were talking about this before. They're always surveying for the reasons the relationship's not safe. Right. So we might call these people clingy or needy or sensitive or overly emotional. But it's really because they're probably dating someone who's avoidant. So this is the worst combination of people, but they tend to find each other. So... One person's always afraid to be left. The other person's afraid of intimacy. So what happens? Person who's afraid to be left says, I'm scared. I don't know what's going on. The avoidant person goes, oh, we're good. Everything's fine. But that intimacy freaks the shit out of them. So then they then distance themselves. They'll be unavailable. They won't answer calls. So we all know this dance, right? Yeah. That's the that's like the classic couple that breaks up and gets back together. Again and again. You know? But what's cool is... It's not cool, actually, but it's cool from a, 
outward perspective, it's not cool to be in it, is they're actually confirming each other's belief about the world. So the anxious person believes that people will leave, and look, the avoidant person leaves them. So they're confirming this. For the avoidant person, love means smothering, love means neediness, emotion, you know, all these things, control, and this person confirms it. So we're actually picking our partners on a subconscious level to confirm what we believe, but also to actually heal the experience with the parent. So when we actually look at relationships on like a more subconscious, emotional, deeper level, and we can even look at them through a soul contract level, if that's the language, it doesn't really matter, it's all similar, um, there, we're being invited to heal through them. We're actually being invited to heal our pain. So what's really cool, if you look at it, your parents inherited their emotional matrix from their parents. And who inherited it from really there. deep here in the matrix. <laughs> we're about to, man. We're about to get into the, this is the matrix of emotion. So if you look at it, the, your family tree, your family tree, we understand we inherit skin color, eye color, hair color, all of these things from our parents and all our ancestors. We are actually inheriting all of their emotional wounds. Fucking crazy, right? And so when we actually learn how to be the last angry version of your family, the last hurt, frustrated, abandoned child, when we learn how to heal it, fuck, it's so powerful because we're actually healing generations. And what's so cool is that we transfer that to our kids. We transfer emotional health to our kids. And like, what a cool, amazing, like when you see how important the work is, how like powerful that work is. Because the moment you take your healing, you share it with everybody around you. All your friends that you identify with, they'll resist it a little bit because who doesn't resist like vulnerable conversation? But you begin to heal everybody who's willing to be healed. That's why it's so fucking cool. Interesting. Well, yeah, super, I love psychology, right? So like the subconscious patterning of that operates our minds has always fascinated me, right? And like there's so many things going on that we're not aware of, right? And I think this goes back to the point of, you know, we don't teach emotional intelligence at school, right? And I think that's why there's all these coaches and gurus and whatever you want to call them, you know, there's, and the internet's making it more accessible too, really taking off. now. I think we're at a point in human history where we're starting to heal all these wounds and these pains that we've had as a species. And I agree with you 100%, like we're transferring it, right? And even when I came forward as bisexual, you know, there's a lot of men that have reached out to me, like, hey, I'm struggling with this, right? And so like by stepping forward, I've been able to help other people. And it's not that I have all the answers on my journey, right? It's like, I definitely know that the relationships I was having with men was kind of, you know, trying to heal things with my dad. And I've kind of made those subconscious connections and what I was seeking in those relationships and why I was going there for that. But it's all goes back to healing and getting to that deeper root, you know, past the surface level and what is beneath that at a deeper level. I love that. You're, I mean, you're dead on that we have this, once we understand it, we can see that the reason we're not talking about what we feel is because we're afraid of rejection. You know, like, most of it, you know, when we look at emotional pain and the way we respond, all of us share the similar fear, all of us, that we're not enough, that we're just not lovable as we are. So if you're afraid of being abandoned or afraid of being rejected, underneath that is, I'm not enough. And we all share that. Like, who hasn't sat in a moment where they felt despair and they felt lonely as a child too, where you're like, didn't fit into the group or you got picked on or whatever it is. And we all can identify with that. And you know what's crazy about this work is when you get into a conversation with your partner or your future partner, you begin to see the child in them responding. You begin to see that you're actually just, you see that all the people around you are just experiencing wounds their life is an expression of their wounds you know and that's such a fascinating way to see the world because you begin to just develop an innate empathy because you see that like your pain was inherited and man in a way that sort of lets us off the hook right to be able to say like wow the reason i'm going the reason i'm a dick sometimes is because i actually learned to be a dick but in there is an opportunity because once you realize you're a dick, that's awareness. You can't be a dick anymore. 
because then it's a choice. And then it becomes a responsibility for you to correct that because you can now you know your dick. You said awareness. You can choose to continue being a dick or you can do something about it. Which will hurt you. So if you continue to do something that you know is not good for you, you're actually just going to continue to hurt yourself on a deeper level now because you're conscious of it. And that's why when we wake up to pains, you know, like we could be an alcoholic or a drug addict or something like that. And we understand that that's bad for us, right? Like on an intellectual level, we know that binge drinking or casual sex in certain ways can be a solution to things rather than just for fun. And when we begin to understand those things, we can begin to, to heal the emotional experience. Cause that's, man, that's the catch is we'd all be running around doing healthy things and making healthy decisions if it was all logical. It's not logical. You know, cause we can make, someone could say to us, like, you need to leave that relationship. And we're like, yes, we should. And then we're like, but we're not going to, right? Like that's, that's what can happens all the time. All the time. Right. Yeah. And then when they finally leave the relationship, they're like, I knew that was going to end. And we're like, yeah, we all knew that was Everyone saw it coming. You know, we told you and you didn't listen, but you had to go through it yourself. I've seen that happen again and again. I get that. Yeah, man. I, I get it. I beat it. <laughs> you know, so. And understanding once you like get to that space, it's what I think was really interesting what you said about like how your work and your experience has now had people come reach out to you. And for me, what's been so fascinating is I think if we're open to it, we all sort of become the teacher that we needed. You know, that's really all the work is, is, is teaching people through our own journey. And that's why people identify with different people's stories. You know, that's how they connect. And to be able to experience what you're going through, someone who's one, two, three, four, five steps behind where you are now is looking to you as as a teacher. And that's why it's so powerful that you share your story in such a public forum. But look how empowering it is for you, too, that it's like, wow, you're actually being celebrated now for the thing that you thought would make you least lovable. Yeah, and it's. I had to go through it to really see that happen, right? Because everything in my mind was so fear-based and it's going to be bad, bad, bad that until I went over the edge and onto the other side, I wasn't able to see what was there for me. Sam, yeah, learn it to teach it. You know, like I thought when I left my relationship 10 years ago that I would be screwed. I was like, I don't know what's going to happen now. Like I'm going to step into the unknown. And I'm, even when I started my business, like, I don't, who's going to listen to me talk about love for relationships, right? Like it's, we all have the saboteur in us. Yeah. Who's highly effective. I want to be respectful of your time. And I know we're getting close to the end of it. Um, a couple of quick questions. Maybe we won't go too far down the rabbit hole on them, but some things I one thing I want to shine light on. You wrote an article. It's called we failed men. Here's how, and it talked about circumcision and how it's basically male, uh, general mutilation. And this is something that I know actually because I worked for a doctor in Vancouver, Dr. Neil Pollock, who does vasectomies and circumcisions. And I was promoting marketing and stuff. And until I went to the Pride Parade and ran into a booth about circumcision, this guy totally like grilled me on the facts. Talk a bit more about that because I think it's so common that, you know, kids get circumcised and there's not really a lot of science to validate the reason for it. No, you know, it's a, <clears throat> it's a science, it's a, it's a religious and tribal ritual that has just been perpetuated. It's, it's actually got the same founding roots as female genital mutilation. So I, if people get triggered by this information, just do the research and you'll see that it's actually true. Um, but what's fascinating about that is if I relate it to female genital mutilation, often I get, people get defensive and they go, it's different. One's the clitoris. That's very different. And that's for sexual control. And that's why men did it. And there's that defense. And I say, we're arguing over whether the, the foreskin is more important or less important than the clitoris. It's the act. We don't want to get lost in the content, just like the toilet seat. You know, it's the same idea. It's the act that's important in both. What's really fascinating about it is that the evolution of circumcision has sort of like founded its, its support in whatever was hot at the time. You know, they used to believe that circumcision cured um, paralysis because a kid had a type four skin who couldn't walk because of the pain and they circumcised him. I think this was in the early 1900s and he could walk again. So they're like, Oh, circumcise everybody who's par paralyzed, you know, and 
fascinating, right? Because that was how our minds, we weren't thinking in these complex, you know, ways. It was also used for sexual control too. What's interesting about the female response is that men have also been controlled by men too, you know, and that's genital mutilation, circumcision is not founded on any science. It's just now funneled through the path of science to keep it okay. Because if we, like if there was a woman being circumcised in a hospital in Vancouver, we would be, there would fuck that. The there'd be protests would be out front, up. there'd be signs, picketers, right? it would be the whole nine yards. And you look at this, these are deep emotional traumas that are experienced by a baby because here you are born into your caregivers. Your mom's like, I love you, I'm going to take care of you, just give me a second, we're going to cut off the tip of your penis. Right. Like, how does that even the fact that this isn't isn't completely stopped? It's illegal in Finland or Sweden, one of those countries. It's far less. It's not done even close to as much in Europe and in Canada. It's a little less than the United States. But, you know, we have the same founding principles. And so the science behind it is absolute rubbish. There's nothing to support it. There might be mild, weak science to support that it lowers the amount of HIV transmission. Um but that's not really relevant to our country, to our third, to our first world. It's not really relevant. Even the science is kind of weak for that anyways. I don't want to get lost in those details. I think that we've sort of failed men in the aspect that, like, why is this okay? Like, why are men not fighting for this? Why are women not fighting for this, too? And why do we continue to choose to support a ritual that is nothing but a ritual? It doesn't make sense. It's actually hurting a child. And in a way, it violates the human right, you know, of getting to choose. You know, the if you actually get circumcised because of a scientific, like an actual infection or something like that, you get circumcised as an adult. You know, you don't need to cut off all penises in order to save one. You know, it's such a... My, uh, my friend of the family, when we were young, he said, people who circumcise are the most optimistic people in the world. And I'm like, Why? He's like, they cut off a quarter of it before they even know how big it's going to be. And I was like, that's actually quite funny. Well, when I worked for this doctor, there's a lot of studies out there, and it, you know, it's lobbies that keep fueling that information and keep perpetuating you know, the STD rates or decrease and all this kind of nonsense that people keep buying into. And as long as that stuff is not changed, we don't educate people about it and make people aware of it, kids will continue to get circumcised what it comes down to. I, yeah, and you know, it'd be interesting to see who those lobbyists are. I'd imagine they're religious groups. <clears throat> but that's the thing is like, as religion evolves too, you know, we've seen the most recent pope say condoms are okay. Well, thank you. That's really kind of you to say that birth control is okay. But you know, it's like, why can't Judaic law say, hey, like maybe we actually shouldn't be harming men? You know, I just think about the message it sends to a child. You're not okay as you are. We had to actually fix you. You know, like, you think about that on a psychological level, the emotional trauma that they experience, I think it's fascinating. It affects attachment style, I would imagine. There's some science on that, which is interesting. Last question for you. I still going to get back to writing. I'm surprised you didn't consider yourself a writer prior to getting into this. I find your writing very poetic. What do you set time aside for it? How did you get into writing very quickly? Because I thought this would be something that was a natural skill to you. You might have done since a child. How did this come about then where you started writing the way that you do? Well, thank you for the kind words. Um, I, I was looking at what medium could I sort of start with. And because I really enjoy video, but I was so much more, I was very fearful of starting video because I felt so much more vulnerable. Even when I started writing at first, I was really struggling with this. Should I write under a ghostwriter's name? You know, because I didn't want, I was so afraid of what people would think about me. Um, and I started, I worked with a coach and I started my Instagram one day and I just started writing about the quote below the quote. And I just did that every day. I committed to posting every day. I've never missed a day <clears throat> in two and a half years. And I usually post twice a day now. And my articles started because I just, I don't know, I guess it, it was just the way that it, the opportunity presented itself. Like, this is the medium that you get to first start with. And I was always like a reasonable writer, but I never really thought of myself as a poetic or but I guess as soon as your emotion comes into your writing, it's something else takes over, you know? When you're able to write from the space of 
these are my pains and these are the things that I've done wrong and here's what I've learned, it becomes your story. And I think that was easier for me to relate to than to write about just scientific facts or something like that. That's why the I love the combination of science and spirituality because very much my journey went from like the linear mindset of studies and science and that, which I think many people relate to, you know, that's sort of the gateway to the linear mind is here, let me actually show you, you know, because I could tell you, well, if you change the way you think, you'll change your life, right? And we know that that's true from a spiritual aspect. You know, someone says, change your thoughts, change your life. I think it's Wayne Dyer, right? Yeah. But if I said, oh, well, watch The Secret and then start to manifest things, people go, oh, fuck that. That movie, The Secret, is weird. You know, you don't just imagine a red bike and get a red bike. But if I talk to you about the science of optimism, which is a studied science, it's the exact same thing. It's just got science behind it. So then linear people go, okay, well, that I'm open to that conversation because it's got a p-value, you know. But I think the the writing has been sort of this journey of self-expression and an opportunity for people to share a, a written thing is a little different than an Instagram post. I like the articles, which my articles tend to get pretty long sometimes because I like have so many thought out processes. I put so much into them um, because I really want to challenge the way people think. I don't I don't believe that it's OK that we continue to operate the way that we do without asking questions. That's why the circumcision article to me was like. It's not okay to continue to allow corporations, religions, and cultural rituals to rule us, to ruin us. You know, look what that's done to our food. And look at what that's done to our bodies. You know, and I think it's really important that whatever your process is, whether it's writing or speaking or whatever it is, that you just begin, you know, like, just start. I think that's being the big, I don't, I don't know if it's the same for you. It's like, just get the first thing out. Well, that was for me. I'm like, I'm always, I always thought it was a great conversation unless I was getting sales. I'm like, just start a podcast, right? It aligned with my skill set. There's things that I'm passionate about. I'm like, I don't want to work in corporate world forever. You know, start podcasting and then go from there. I'm like, this is my next chapter. It's called your next chapter. I'm like, and we'll go from here and we'll see how it goes. Right. And so I think that's the biggest thing is you got to start somewhere and move forward from there. Well, yeah, and I think what most people, the mind, at least for me, it went, well, if I do that and it's wrong, then I've now wasted time. But what we don't see is like, if you take a step one and it's not the right step, it is the right step because it now allowed you to take a different step. And so step one perceptually comes back and you start another step one. You're actually at step two. So <clears throat> we don't see that, you know, and we do this, you know, that how we do one thing is how we do everything is so fascinating because it doesn't matter if it's a dream, it doesn't matter if it's a relationship, it doesn't matter if it's a conversation. We're always afraid of the things we're going to lose because we can see them. They're, they're visually in our experience. So I can see that I'm going to lose this relationship or this job. But what I can't see is all of the amazing things that are going to come into my life by stepping into the unknown. And I now live in the space of unknown. Now I'm like, hey, I should run a conference, and I run a conference, or I'm like, I should do a, a retreat, and I run a retreat, and I have no idea how anything's going to work out, but it always does, so, you know, it's like, just continue to leap into that faith. That's the power of living in the unknown. <clears throat> yeah, isn't it? Like, man, I bet when you start your podcast, you're like, I know when I first wrote, I was like, well, my parents will read this, so I'll have two readers, you know, that was about... That's about, you know, the first article. That was about it. I had about 100 people. Wrapping up, where can people find you if they want to uh, find the stuff that you write or reach out to you, do some coaching with you? Where can people track you down? So you can track me down on my website, which is markgroves.tv, like television. Um, or you can go to my Instagram, which is create the love. Um, and on my Facebook page, I share, like, my articles. I share other articles. I share all my Instagram posts. My events are all on there. They're also on my newsletter if you sign up on my website. My email is connect at markgroves.tv. So if you want to fire me an email, happy to chat. Um, it, this has been such a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, thank you for taking the time to sit down today. And I'll link out all the uh, Instagram, Facebook, and your website in the show notes as well. Awesome. Thanks thank you, so Mark. Much, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, sir. Well, 
there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, my conversation with Mark Groves. One of the things that really stood out to me in that conversation was when Mark talked about living in the unknown. And I feel we do this a lot again and again, where we hold on to relationships, we hold on to parts of our lives, and we're unwilling to let go of certain things because we're afraid of what's on the other side. And so we cling on to these things but we're not making space for new opportunities to enter. And I think that's an important concept because our logical and rational minds, we love what we can see, like Mark said, in front of us, what we can identify and know what's going to happen. But there's so much available to us when we jump into that unknown, as Mark talked about. And so that's the big thing that I want to leave you with. If you enjoyed this podcast, jump onto my email list. I just put together a PDF about four habits that changed my life. So I'll put the link to that. And if you want to get that, just jump onto my email list and you'll get that plus all the latest episodes sent directly to you. Thank you so much for tuning in this episode and I look forward to being with you on the next one.